We have a special guest with us today, Robert Caldwell. We're really excited to have him from Linden Life Fellowship. He's going to be speaking with us today. He does a lot of racial justice work and advocacy work um, and runs, um, runs poverty simulation trainings at different police forces. And he's gonna be sharing with us today. In a few months, we're going to have a class with him. So we're really excited for that about racial justice. And he's gonna be speaking today. We're so excited that he's here. Am I handing this to you? You know, the, let's say poverty simulation. It's actually poverty LARP, live action role play. And here, you, you wanna see it up here? And I love it because it actually, if any of you have ever done a LARP or act out something, you lose sight that you're in a simulation and you end up uh, really uh, getting emotionally involved. And that's a part of having empathy. So when we do that, you guys got to be there. It's not gonna be easy. There's no winning this simulation. It's, uh, but the experience will uh, make you more open to Christ, quite honestly. All right, you got your mic working? Yes, one, two, yeah. All right, so this is my friend Robert. Uh, and we've been having some conversation. How about you introduce this? You'll do a better job at that. <laughs> Um, I met Jeff when he was uh, assistant pastor at uh, Big Vineyard way back when. Um, we connected, been friends ever since. Um, uh, stayed, uh, kind of lost touch for a while, but got back together. And then here in post-pandemic, which is most important to Jermaine to what we're doing today, um, began having like real conversations about race, racism in the church like and um, his journey impressed me um, and so we started having conversations unpacking some of the things that he's been thinking about and he tried to offer some perspective and context so that he um, you know kind of continues to live into what he is now thinking about all these issues and what he hopes the church could ultimately be as it attempts to address those issues in this modern moment that we're in. That, 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 good? that sounds good. We've been having a we've been having conversations over the last several months, and um, when we thought about doing this, that's what we decided to do, which is expand on the conversations that we've been having. Um, what wasn't referenced in the little bio is I've been doing training uh, around poverty and race for over 25 years now. So back when it was called diversity and inclusion, um, our diversity training um, when I started doing it. Uh, but we've gotten, like anything over the years, we've gotten better language, a better understanding, better ways to communicate, you know, sort of reality of and um, I think most importantly, this is something that I clearly understand now at age 62 that um, was part of what God had intended for me in my life and my role in terms of, uh, you know, discipling the church and making an impact on the planet. So. Something that, as I've seen kind of your personal evolution, and something, I think, in an evolution of what God's actually speaking 
to his followers in our nation is this idea that uh, you know bias and prejudice are universal. You know, racism is not universal per se. In that uh, you can have a culture where there's a lot of prejudices of the different people, but those people hold the same power. But what we, our situation here isn't one of just biases and prejudice, it's one of power structures. So I remember originally doing Break Dividing Walls. A lot of that was kind of crossing the cultural boundaries, but what I've seen really happen is you've really uh, provided ramps to understanding that there's actually a major oppositional force and structure against that even taking place. Can you just tell a little bit about that journey? Sure. Um, the, um, well, first let me, let me say this for you all's benefit. Um, I may say some things that may not land well on your ear, um, and, and you may you know, you can expect that, but um, that's part of who I am. I'm a disruptor. If you're going to go strictly biblical, I'm clearly a prophet. And I have been stoned many times, so uh, metaphorically or physically, so yeah. You need so, to when you say stone. well, you know, they stone prophets. That's true. Stone, they, you know, stone prophets. People know what I'm talking about. But, um, but that being said, um, you know, we all uh, have been socialized into American society and a version of Christianity that, until. Um, recently, relatively recently, in the popular mainstream of society, um, it was unknown to people how entrenched in racism, you know, the version of Christianity that we've all been socialized into really is. And um, like anything, you're socialized into something, it becomes normative for you, you just kind of organize your life around you know, that norm, and without knowing it, you uh, begin to, to be complicit in the perpetuation of some of the problem. And the thing that, the main thing that I've learned in the now 25, 30 years or so that I've been actively thinking and trying to teach about this is that um, the, the, the operative question for people like you all, who are identified as white in American society, is to stop thinking about racism as an identity, like I'm racist, I'm not racist, and start thinking about how racism has impacted your life or has shaped your life. And so in American society, there is nothing, I repeat, nothing that has not been shaped by racism, and in particular, anti-black racism. The better way to say that in the academy now, and that's a little less palatable for people, is it's about white supremacy. So don't think skinheads and Nazis, think the color of your skin and all that is associated with that in American society has elevated whiteness as the standard for which you know we all supposed to aspire to. So in my journey, I'm a 62-year-old black man where assimilation is what I was taught from the time I was a kid. I had to figure out how to be as white as I could be 
language, culture, you know, things like that, and so that I could get access to the opportunities for, you know, success in our society. Um, and so for people who are not identified as white, whose skin color is different and other obvious ethnic or racial differences, all of us understand that. We've had to become bicultural or bilingual in a way just so that we can under, you know, understand. But when you're in that dominant culture, um, you, you, you're not aware of it. You don't even think about it. It's like the old thing where you, know, you talk to a fish and you go, well, how's it like being in the water? And the fish goes, well, what's water? Right? So you all, all of us have been socialized into American society with a certain set of standards or a certain set of values and behaviors that are the norm or what is, are elevated as the norm. But those of us who are identified as white and kind of have been socialized in that without a real understanding of the distinction there aren't aware of it, we just aren't aware of it. And so when all of the racism stuff started popping off and more, more intently in the wake of George Floyd, people started grappling, particularly progressive thinking people, um, that most of you would probably be, started grappling with this idea of, you know, well, I'm not a racist. Uh, baby boomers in particular, particularly those who came out of the civil rights movement, uh, who kind of grew up with the civil rights movement, um, you know, were for civil rights and all of that. But what they didn't get that I think we can help people get now is they didn't get that just because you're a good white person who has black friends or, you know, whatever, and you participated in the civil rights or you've been an advocate for justice. Um, when you start talking about racism, you can't say, I'm not a racist. All of us have been influenced by racism. All of us have. We've been shaped by racism. And we have to stop thinking about it again as an identity. Does that make sense? Let me make sure I'm ready. I see some head nods, but you know, very specifically what I'm talking about is, you know, you, you, you know how the uh, scriptures talk about we can put on Christ, you know, or the values of the kingdom, or we can ascribe to them and take off the values of the world, or in Romans, you be transformed by the renewing of your mind, all of that. We've all been socialized into a way of thinking about race and racism as if it's an identity that we can say we're not without understanding, no, you are, you've been immersed in um, um, a, a system or a, a, a way of thinking about yourself that has been shaped by white supremacy or anti-black racism. And the church was completely co-opted by that back at the time post-civil rights, or post-Civil um, War, um, Jim Crow, the, you know, the modern American church kind of was developed under the um, Jim Crow era. So, you know, when you look at this congregation of believers here, I look around, there is perhaps some socioeconomic diversity but there's not a whole lot of racial or ethnic diversity. And that's a byproduct of what I was just trying to unpack a bit, so. I wanna get a little, drop some theology here and sure. interrupt me if you, if you think I'm like 
confusing the issue because you know sometimes I go on those rabbit trails. But there's uh, this issue of white supremacy has actually uh, been what God's used to reveal a gaping hole in most American Christians who would identify as white in our theology. That, they, that this has been something God has used to illuminate that our gospel is fractured and broken. And, let me, and people are saying, I'm not saying who's going to heaven or hell or anything like that. I'm saying our theology of the gospel is broken. And let me, here's why I think that. Is this idea of identifying I am not a white supremacist or I'm not a racist or I am a racist. This idea that our behavior uh, is our whole identity is something the gospel breaks away from us. The gospel takes away shame and in its place puts conviction. So this idea that a lot of people, whenever we start talking about this, especially uh, more traditional thinkers, will be like, oh, you're just teaching our kids to hate, hate themselves and uh, feel bad about themselves and blah, blah, blah. I said, no, we're telling someone, hey, you have cancer. Have we got surgery for you? We're actually offering liberation and freedom because if we take shame off the table, we can swim in the joyful waters of conviction. So the hole in the gospel, the, the, the heresy, I would say, the, the denial of the teachings of Christ. And I'm, I'm saying this, you may, I'm not using hyperbole here, by the way. I believe this is God's grace speaking to his church. The hole in our gospel is we are, we are blind or have been blinded to one of the, the biggest demonstrations of structural evil in the world. One of the, the biggest demonstrations in our world of structural evil. And we have a, a theological paradigm that skates past it because we're worried about getting our feelings hurt. And I, I think the term white fragility has been a real gift to the church because it, it, to me, I, my question has been like, instead of am I a racist or am I not? No, I'm a beloved child of God who's loved despite a whole lot of stuff. But the question is, how, how is racism overlapping my life and how have I been an active and a passive shareholder in the practice of racism? How I've been an active and a passive shareholder in that. And I, if you know Jesus, we've got what the world needs. Is I can have that conversation without hating myself. Um, yeah, and, and I, I will, um, I'm going to echo that. I'll, I'll add one thing to it uh, for the sake of the point I'm going to add to that, that will allow you to begin to really think about this and what he just said. So the thing I'll add to it is, just again from Scripture, what happens, all of us who've been a believer for any period of time, God, God has, God, God has um, revealed something to you that you need to stop doing, right? You know, you know, some attitude you had prior to salvation or some behavior you were engaged in prior to salvation or along the way. And then you kind of say, I got to repent of that and then trust God through the Holy Spirit to heal you, you know, uh, so that you can move forward without being plagued by that thing. So that's the biblical connect. So here's the question. The thing that most people who have identified as white, who've been socialized in American society all of their lives, have not yet come to grips with is how have you been harmed by racism? 
See, you know, for, 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 forever, until recently, racism was the other people's problem. Racism was, you know, black, white, black people's problem or, you know, however, you know whoever's marginalized by uh, white supremacy. And people tend to think of it like that. It's just, you know, what can we do to help those people or what is, you know, what's going on with those people or whatever. But the reality is that, again, all of us have been impacted by racism. And the question that you have to grapple with is partly what Jeff alluded to, is how has racism harmed you? Because it has harmed you. And I know you love this congregation. You're here, you've been coming, you've been hanging out. But the fact that this room is filled with all or mostly people who are identified as white is an evidence in one way of how racism has harmed you. Because your, your experience of church has been um, reduced to this sort of largely homogeneous experience where the diversity of perspectives, the diversity of application of scripture, the value that people who have different lived experiences could bring to your own understanding about the gospel, about scripture, about what God is trying to do on the planet, that's been denied you because you have been trapped structurally into a version of church that the most intimate thing that you do as believers, which is worship together, does not include diversity. Does not include the diversity of perspective and experience that could add so much value to your experience with Christ. So the question that you have to begin to grapple with is to really interrogate how has it harmed your life? It probably affects where you live, how you parent your kids, where you want to go to school. It has certainly affected your parents and decisions that they perhaps made about where to live and where they sent you to school, what kind of job you want to aspire to, whatever, what you do with your money. All of that has been impacted by this. And you were socialized into it, unaware, but now, in this moment in time, the opportunity for the church is to begin to become aware and begin to actually grapple with this so that more of the fullness of the gospel, more of the fullness of relationship with God, and the relationship that you need to realize has always been there with your brothers and sisters who are um, um, more obviously harmed by racism. Are, are kind of going through and, and the role that you get to play to be a part of the healing of that. I need some, hold on, I need somebody to react to that for me. Somebody in this room who's willing need to, maybe you can reflect back what you heard me say, or if you're willing, something came to mind when I asked you to think about how racism harmed you. Um, I need you, somebody to say something. So you got one. Try yeah. not to get feedback here. If it, there's feedback, it's my fault, not Andy's. I've grown up in Columbus my whole life. Mm -hmm. I was born on a street down here in Tulane, and we lived in Linden for years. Mm -hmm. 
and my parents moved us out to Dublin mm -hmm. when I was in fourth grade because there was a lot of violence that was happening around our neighborhood and they wanted to get out. Um, and so my experience went from very multicultural to very white and not only outskirts. And so I see myself pulled out of that and kind of how my life has unfolded since. And so I'm just reflecting on all that. Okay. Anybody else? Over there. And then over there. One, two. Hello. Yeah, I, I thought that was all uh, really helpful and on point. Um, I think a uh, big part of it, like terms like racism or racist and um, white supremacy, I think there's a lot of generational baggage around that because I think a lot yeah. of people, um, you know, that's like maybe a step above pedophile. Um, and, and so I don't want to be bad person. I'm not a bad person. So that's how it gets translated in a person's head is I am a bad person. Right. Um, and likewise, like you said, like with white supremacy, people associate that with, you know, the clan or the skinheads or whatever. I'm not that. And so it's really helpful to uh, broaden and reframe the concept this way and, and less of a, like you said, identity. Like, are you one of these people right. versus something, a bigger sort of system and set of forces and, that we're embedded in? I want this, this person here has a comment and I want to I want to offer you another illustration to help make that point. Go. Um, I was thinking about <clears throat> our political climate as a country mm -hmm. and um, just the impact of um, 11 o'clock being the most segregated yeah. hour in America. If, like, imagining the healing of what could have been prevented had we reckoned with this more rigorously sure. over time. You know, I think of black women saving America in our last election. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just the whole idea that white supremacy wouldn't have impacted the movement that caused all the harm in January 6th and things like that. So here is a, another illustration. Um, hopefully, we, you, it was referenced that we're going to do a class at some point um, next calendar year. Um, but I, un, I unpack these things more thoroughly uh, than the time would allow this morning. But here's an illustration um, that I think makes this point. How did you all get here today? Car. Um, anybody drive an electric car or a hybrid car here? Two people. All those people had a hybrid car. Three had a hybrid car. Okay. Let's um, fast forward 200 years from now. And somehow in that time, they found, they are discovered or developed a a way of propulsion that actually, um, you know, produced oxygen. It was great for the environment and people, it didn't harm the planet. They would look back on this period of time 
and go, what the hell was wrong with those people? Didn't they know that they were contributing to the demise of the planet, that they were harming the planet when they did that? So I came here in a combustion engine car. You came here in a combustion engine car. Hybrid cars are really a marketing ploy because the battery is going to still cause harm when, you know, because they don't know how to dispose of that, so it'll screw up the landfill and leach into the soil and do all kinds of crap damage um, too. So we all have been locked structurally in to a way that to harm the planet. Because what, what are our alternatives to get around? You can walk, you can ride, and there are clearly people who advocate for that. So there are advocates for better ways to get around, like walking, like um, riding a bike or different things, but we have jobs because we live in places. There's no way to do that. Some people can and all of that, but we're, so we're all still kind of structurally locked in to doing something that is actually harming the planet. We are all complicit. I don't want to go into what we do with our trash and what happens to that, but all you have to do is start thinking about it. We're all complicit in the harm of the planet right now. And there are people for decades, my entire lifetime, there are people who have been advocating, we need to do something different. We need to have something different. We need to do Well, 200 years or more ago, when slavery was the way in which things were, there were always people, there were people who were advocating against that saying that's, you know, crazy and we ought to do something else and they fought and they died to try to interrupt that and, you know, abolitionists is what they were called and they were of all stripes back then. Um, and yet it took hundreds of years of American society before there was any legislation to actually end it and then even with the legislation it had already desaturated society and to this day its remnants still persist. Right? So when you again think about racism and how it's, it's harmed all of us. We have all been harmed negatively in some way. So very specifically with regard to those of us who are believers and are attempting to follow the Lord and be about the work of the kingdom on the planet we have all been hindered severely in our understanding of, um, to be able to do that. And the call in this moment in time, and I really think it's to this next generation of folks who this is going to be most possible um, for, the, for the church to be activated around this and begin to um, address that sin that got baked in to the way we do church, you know, from the beginning, that we have just avoided dealing with for all these uh, decades. A journey with this yeah. question. It's the first time I answered this question, it was totally BS. First time I answered this question, it was actually provocative, and I got some pushback. And, you know, that's how you have real conversations is, you know, you expect things not to be harmonious as you work towards harmony. You got you to gotta run towards the dissonance. 
And I gave, and I'm not even going to give you the answer, but how does race affect me? I gave a very sterile sociological answer for uh, how so-called whites have been impacted economically by racism and blah, blah, blah. And it was just garbage answer, all right? It, it may have been like, whatever, but I, you, you kind of threw that question back. You threw it as a softball. I took it and didn't do anything with it, and then you threw it as a hardball and whacked me in the face. And, you know, that lingering pain made me think about this question because it's, and, and, and as followers of Jesus, we, a lot of times we talk about the uh, prayers of examine where we wrestle with something that we can't totally answer and allow things to, over a long period of time, come to the surface. And I'm not going to go into everything that came up. I'll maybe get a summary. Well, I'll just read the summary and I'll explain a couple of them. Loss of identity, loss of reality, loss of vocation, loss of intimacy, and loss of destiny. And uh, it's kind of like you don't know. If we were on a planet where everyone was blind, every person, no one would know they were missing out on sight. But uh, loss of identity is one thing because being, being white, or even using that term white, uh, erases so many stories. Now, we, uh, it, a lot of people who subscribe to the corporate whiteness are shareholders in ripping stories away from countless people, taking them from their nation of origin, their stories, the folklore, some of which was preserved, but a lot was taken away. But we've also, the blowback is our stories have been stolen too. And I'm just call uh, Maureen, like one thing I love about you is you identify with your Irish heritage quite a bit. You seem very interested, but it seems like that has been empowered by you understanding the construct of whiteness as an eraser of culture and you know having uh, a, a daughter who's bicultural and stuff like that, that it seems like what I've noticed is people can enjoy their I'm German or Irish or French or this more when they take away the bland construct of whiteness. And I, since I started discovering this, it's like I started diving more into my own heritage and realizing it's a lot more fun. Instead of just saying, oh, I'm just a melting pot, I'm a mutt, you know, the fact is there is cultural influences and I've been able to celebrate my Mediterranean heritage, even though it's just a tiny part of me, that's what sociologically has impacted me. Now that, that might see a thing like, but as far as reality, let's just talk this on a friend level. Uh, there's a lot of parents in here. And if your parent, I wanna I want give a pretty tough example here, but if your child uh, was came to you and started describing some things that happened when they stayed after school, and you discovered that your child was sexually abused by a teacher in this institution. And then you start to discover, you try to inform the authorities, inform the school, that there's been allegations of this going on for a long period of time, and there's been a system of cover-up of this allegation. And imagine going to one of your best friends for support or going to your church or uh, another Christian leader in the community 
And their response to you and the deepest wound that your child has been abused is, well, we really don't know all the facts yet. And until everything comes out, you never can totally tell. So I don't feel comfortable calling it abuse because we don't. Would that person be, who would be friends with that person going forward? Uh, who would, might resort to an act of spontaneous violence if someone approached you that way? Uh, that's what happened after Casey Goodson was murdered countless times over the body of Christ. People live in different realities. And the reality is we still don't, we just don't know enough about this. You know what, how, how, how you know that you're part of a system is you ask, do I default towards that level of uh, uh, skepticism towards any crimes perpetrated against other pale skinned people? And I found in my own life, like I do still have that little trigger, that little solenoid that clicks in the motor of my heart that says, well, maybe we don't know everything and stuff. And after, to this point, all those people that said, we don't know enough to really take a stance on this. Well, now we know enough. Can you retroactively make a stance? And do you imagine, so in effect, I feel like the church has become more divided, more sundered, even at the family level. Or the church actually has a chance to be the church. Amen. Because one argument I would make is whatever this we've called church, particularly in the last 100 years in American society, and more particular in the wake of evangelicalism in the American church, I'm not sure all of that is the church. There's a remnant of folks inside of that, that the opportunity to be the church is laid before us now. That's, that's, that's what I would believe. I, I don't like, I mean, I think many of you would, you know, sort of agree with this in, in terms of its rhetoric, but actually think about it. Not everybody who calls himself a Christian is really following Jesus. Not everybody is invested in the way that um, we are called to be invested in justice and what Jesus is trying to accomplish on the planet. So my thing is that this is the opportunity to, for the, the real church to emerge um, in this moment. Just read a scripture from Ephesians 6. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you, which is, if you read the Bible and it says you, you should just put in y'all, that y'all can stand against the devil's schemes. For our collective struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities against the powers of this dark world. Now, this is a very important word. And, and against the spiritual forces and evil and the rulers and authorities, oh, in, in the heavenly realms. And against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. So the first hierarchy of evil, he says our battle is not against flesh and blood. We're talking on earth. We're talking on earth. People, a lot of theologians and stuff have just missed that and. And what they've said is, oh, these are all different levels, a hierarchy of spiritual leader, uh, influences, angels and demons, and really teased out what each level is. And they missed the and, that there is systemic evil. And we deny that evil when we say a few bad apples or make it all about personal sin. 
We need to think of life as something we subscribe in. We're shareholders in this experience. And what I love about this is it's assumed. Be strong in the Lord. Put on the floor so that you can take your stand against. This isn't passive. This isn't passive, you know. This is active resistance as you take your stand. So Ephesians, a, a lot of, especially fundamentalist churches, will spend forever on the first part of Ephesians when the whole point of the beginning of Ephesians is to get us to this. Because of all this good theology, because of who Jesus is, therefore take your stand because your battle isn't against a few apples, but there are systems that are destroying human lives of this, that, and the other, and you're resisting them, and it's also happening on a spiritual realm. So there's, there's demonic empowerment of these structures, but we've had a church that wants to deal with this saying it's just a, a ethereal issue when the scriptures, and you don't need a theological degree to see what this verse is saying here. So if, when, I've been really depressed and saddened and just blown away by the resistance to some of the ideas of critical race theory in the church because they're just saying you know there's some academics saying what the bible said for a couple thousand years let's let's get some like bible proud here you know the bible is saying that structure evil is a thing and that is our part of our vocation as saved people to be resisting that and so when I said loss of vocation, Micah 6.8 is do justice. It says it before, love mercy and walk with humility. It says do justice. Justice is a verb. It, says, it doesn't say don't have just opinions. It says do it. And there's a lot to unpack in what that means. So um, how much time we got left? About 10 minutes. Um, what I'm going to do is, I'd love to offer an opportunity for a couple of questions, um, if anybody has one in particular that they might want to ask. Um, but I will, you know, the caveat will be, I'll do my best in a quick snap, but we could have a chat afterwards if you wanted to delve deeper. But more to the point, I, the, the class that I will do, and the class that I am doing and have done called, um, Poverty, race, class, and culture um, is where I will connect the dots and unpack things and all of that. So, it's like a teaser for that. yeah, yeah, this is kind of a teaser. But there, but there, there are things percolating in in sort of the mainstream of society today that perhaps people have questions about, like critical race theory, for example. Um, so I don't know if there's anything like that that anybody wants to put out there just for the sake of uh, getting a little bit of my take on it. Yes. So that's what this is about for this particular congregation. Um, that, this discussion is the beginning of um, 
raising awareness, helping you understand, and then um, giving you an opportunity to start thinking about how you invest. And like anything else, this is years in development. I mean, you will, it'll, like anything that you do, particularly when you're, um, you know, repenting of something, um, understanding it. And I think this is, um, this is a good, seg a good way to kind of connect what critical race theory really is. Some of you may have chosen on your own to actually research what critical race theory is. It's clearly not what folks in the media and folks who have sort of used it as a weapon is representing it. It's, it's, not, it's, being, it's not being taught in schools. It's not being taught in elementary school. It's none of that stuff. It's a law school theory that was developed over 25 years ago. And here's what it really was. You, those of us who are old enough to remember when asbestos was the insulation of choice, do we remember that? And then they discovered that asbestos was actually harmful, right? And they passed laws, and not only did they pass laws to forbid asbestos to be used again, they required people who owned buildings to go back in and abate the asbestos. They had to remove it from the building. And so what critical race theory was and is, is racism has clearly impacted American society in all kinds of ways. How has it impacted society in all kinds of ways? And what do we do to mitigate it? How do we abate it? So what had to happen when you abated something, you had to go in and look and see. You had to go figure out where was the asbestos so that you could remove it. You had to do that. So, so the starting point is, yes, you are starting to figure out or you're starting to agree that somehow racism has impacted you as a person who's been identified as white in American society. Well, now the job to abate it in your life, you have to start to interrogate your life in a way that you can see, okay, well, how has it impacted? What, you know, what, what decisions have I consistently made in my life that I've been unaware have been shaped by racism? And what do I do to mitigate that now? What do I do to change now? So that's the beginning, and that's what this process or this partnership that we're developing um, with you all as a congregation is ultimately about. One last one before we shift. Like, uh, there's so much that we've left unsaid, even about our relationship, what we've been through and stuff, because, you know, uh, you pull me aside, I can tell you a longer story. Now, I, I personally had the grace of being, having revealed that where I've been complicit in, a, in an active shareholder in structural racism. And we've had stuff, in, the, in, in one element of that is impacted Robert. And we've had times to work through that. And it's not like, 
The message wasn't now you need to hate yourself and this, the message is I was blind but now I see like we sang today. And the thing is the, the glory of Jesus is you can have crap brought up in your life and you can weep over and deal with it but that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the, end of the story. And when Jesus, you know, Jesus took what was an ethnic specific celebration, that was commun communion, the Passover, and he showed the dynamic of the kingdom. Even what we're talking today is right there in the Eucharist. And he made this a for the whole world celebration, not just for one people group, because that's the trajectory from the insular to the universal. And he took, said, this is my body broken for you. It's for you. It's for all humankind. Same way after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is new covenant in my blood. Every time you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. And at this point, most people who celebrate this don't realize this at one point was just for Jewish people. We, do, we take for granted that this is a cross-cultural deal. And my prayer is that God will begin to reveal to us all the ways he he's, wants to make your world bigger. Now, I'd like everyone to stand. And like our prayer folks, I want to give you, Isaac, to your question. I, immediate next action is I think if you just think something, it's not real. All right? If you just think something, you haven't made it real. Unless you couple that thought with the physical activity Paul says, the life I live in the body, I live by faith. Unless you embody that in some way. In one way that the Bible talks about beginning to change is confessing our sins to one another. Confessing our sins to one another. Because the moving your body and your mouth to say something changes your brain. And, and renewing the mind will not happen non-verbally. Scientific fact. So we want to take time and get a couple more people is if you guys could begin just walking forward and I encourage you guys to to get prayer line up to get prayer pray for each other just say hey listen I don't know I don't know the answer to this question yet but I know there is an answer and I want to just open my heart to God right now will you pray for me and we can do that for each other we can even do it in the aisles here or just to the person next to you but let's just take a moment to come forward and receive prayer. I encourage you to move, because when you move, you'll remember it more. Science again. And let's ask God for this, and we've also passed this clipboard around, because we're, we're going to make sure you get an engraved invitation to come to this class. And everyone who's invited is also asked, bring someone, because let's wake as many people out of the matrix as possible, all right? God bless you. And we're just going to take some...